All right, well, we'll get started. If you're moving over, great, because I would love to be able to hear what you're saying. But welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here. We yeah. are in a transition point in our quarter. The whole quarter is focused on the authority of Jesus. We're looking at the New Testament, looking at the Gospels, and focusing on the authority of Jesus. And we've been seeing his authority displayed in his miracles. He has power over nature. He has power over disease. He has power over death. But now we're going to, in the second half of our quarter, we're going to look at Jesus' authority in his teaching. We're going to focus more on that. And therefore, this sixth lesson, which is a review in some classes, but for us, we're going to consider when the, the thing that Jesus says, have you not read? What is that all about? Well, we'll investigate in just a second, but let's pray before we go on. Pray with me. Our Lord God, I pray that you would cause your word to get into our hearts as it needs to, God, because what we're talking about today is very, very relevant. So I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain it, help the people to be able to take it in. Holy Spirit, please work now among your people. Christ, build up your church. Father, provide in your perfect way. In Jesus' name, amen. So our lesson is titled, Have You Not Read? Well, what's this about? Well, what we're really talking about today our topic is the twisting of scripture for the sake of tradition, where someone changes or ignores what the Bible says to fit his religious ideas or religious system. Now, when I mention this topic of using tradition to change or to interpret the word of God, what sect of Christianity probably most comes to mind? Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church. Certainly they're not the only one, but it is Reformation Month, 500th year after all. When we think tradition, we think probably the Catholics. And it's when we consider some of the things that the Catholic Church teaches, it's just so obvious how they depart from Scripture for the sake of their tradition. They forbid priests from getting married, even though the Bible explicitly says that is a useless thing to do. People who don't understand what the gospel really is forbid people from marrying. Or they worship Mary. They pray to the saints. They teach that the sacraments like the Eucharist are necessary for one's salvation and spiritual health. And worst of all, they add works to the gospel. It's faith plus works makes you saved. Now we might wonder how the Catholic Church could so obviously contradict scripture in their teachings. But such is the power of tradition. You see, when you elevate another authority to the same level or even above the level of the scripture, that authority begins to act as a judge on the scripture. It becomes the lens through which you actually view scripture. And therefore, the contradictions in your traditions in the Bible disappear because you're no longer viewing the Bible in a fair way. You're viewing them through your traditions, and therefore you see no contradiction. Now, are the Catholics, and is the Catholic Church, the only ones guilty of using tradition to affect the way they interpret the Bible? No, they're not the only ones. 
we could think of many different parts of Christianity, those who would call themselves Christians. And dare I say that even we ourselves might fall into this trap? Yes, even we who would identify as conservative evangelical Protestants, we can easily fall into the trap of allowing traditional practices or systems of belief to affect the way that we read, that we understand, and that we apply the Bible. And we can do this without even knowing it. So what's going to protect us from falling into this trap of unbiblical traditions and systems of thought affecting the way we interpret the Bible? Well, a huge part is going to be going back to what our Savior does. Let's look at how Jesus deals with the Bible and with those who twist and misinterpret it. Because that is something that Jesus encountered many times in his ministry. He's often dealing with religious people and religious teachers who, for the sake of unbiblical traditions, will change the scriptures, twist the scriptures. So let's see how our Lord dealt with such persons and what we can learn from him. So please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at two main passages today, both in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12 is our first place. We're going to look at verses 18 to 27. So Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. That's page 1010 in the Pew Bible, if you're using the church's Bible. Just to get some context here, where are we in Jesus' life and ministry? Jesus has already entered Jerusalem in his Passion Week. The triumphal entry is recorded in Mark chapter 11. Jesus comes in. He ends up cleansing the temple getting the religious leaders very upset with him. They demand to know how he has authority to do that. He tells them, first tell me where John the Baptist's ministry came from. Was it from heaven or from men? They weren't willing to answer that question, so he wasn't willing to answer theirs. But the religious leaders are still upset with Jesus, and they come to him, different parts of the Jews, different groups within Judaism, they come to him with different questions in Mark chapter 12. And we're going to see one of those groups coming with a question for Jesus in verses 18 to 27. Now, Pastor Bobby preached this not too long ago, so some of this may be fresh in your minds, but we're going to look at it again, and we're going to consider it especially in light of tradition. How do we protect ourselves from misusing the scriptures for the sake of tradition? And if we are in that state, how do we get out of it? So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 18 in Mark chapter 12. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Okay, not too long of a passage here, but we're going to apply our inductive Bible study method, observe, interpret, apply, and we start with just basic observations. The group that approaches Jesus is the Sadducees. Remember who the Sadducees are. Of the two main groups of the religious elite, Pharisees on one hand, Sadducees on the other. The Sadducees are the ultra-conservative group to, an, to a wrong and unbiblical extent. Remember, they accept only the Torah as God's word. That is only the first five books of Moses. They reject those other books, Psalms, Prophets, just the Torah. Therefore, they deny most things that don't occur in the Torah and uh, occur more specifically in other books. So they don't believe in angels, and they denied the resurrection. Now, we're not talking about individual resurrections. We're talking about the coming final resurrection where everyone will be raised. They say, that's not in the Torah. That's only in other books like Daniel and the Psalms, which aren't inspired. So we don't believe in it. They didn't believe in a resurrection. So if essentially your life consists of only the time you have on earth, and then there's nothing else afterwards, nothing you have to look forward to, how are you going to live on the world? If there's no resurrection, you know, what does I think Paul say in the New Testament? Well, let's eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing else, so we might as well have as good a life, as best a time as we can right now. And that essentially was the attitude of the Sadducees. They were very worldly. They were very corrupt. They loved money. They loved power. They were essentially looking for their best life now because they didn't think anything else was coming. Now, unfortunately, the Sadducees became the majority of the priesthood. And they are also on the religious council. So in one sense, the highest official religious authorities in the land were a bunch of people who believed that there was nothing else beyond this life. That God would be your God only for while you were living on the earth. And then that was it. And the people, the Jews, they knew that the, the priesthood, the Sadducees were corrupt. But there wasn't really anything they could do about it. They were the ones in power. So we have this group of Sadducees. And they come to Jesus. And they have this question for him. And they say, Moses wrote for us. And remember, they love Moses. He's the only guy they recognized. Moses wrote for us this law of leveret marriage. Now, they don't say that here, but that's what we call this law that they're bringing up. From Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. Law of leveret marriage. Now, don't be confused by that term, leveret marriage. It doesn't have to do with the tribe of Levi or Levites. And actually, leveret comes from a Latin word meaning brother-in-law. This law relates to brothers-in-law. And you hear it briefly described in the text, but that is when a man marries a woman but doesn't have any children with her. In the Old Testament law for Israel, if that man had an unmarried brother, 
that brother had a duty to marry the widow and produce a child with her for the sake of his brother. And that child would actually be considered as being the son of the deceased brother so that his name would carry on in Israel. They had this law, the law of leverant marriage. And then with this law, the Sadducees lay out a situation for Jesus. You got these seven brothers. They all marry this one woman, one at a time, but none of them have any children with her. Each brother-in-law keeps doing his duty, marrying the widow. But the brothers all die. None of them have any children. And then the woman dies also. Now, with this information, there's nothing super significant to distinguish the brothers in their relationship to this woman, other than maybe the order that they married her. None have children. There's no indication that one brother loves this woman more than the other. So they put to Jesus, when the resurrection, this supposed resurrection comes, whose wife will she be? Now, most answers to this question, most simple answers, appear unacceptable. Could you say one brother over the other? Well, what really distinguishes them? Why, if as you say the first, why not the second? Or why not the last? But if you say, well, maybe she's married to all of them. No, that, that, that's just totally weird. In the Old Testament, you did have men with multiple wives, but you never had a woman with multiple husbands. They would have felt like that was just totally crazy. So if you can't find a good answer to this theoretical question, what conclusion, at least the Sadducees would hope, that you would have to come to? Okay, so specifically for Jesus, you're right. If he can't come up with an answer to this question, he's going to be discredited. What kind of authority does he have, especially as a messenger or a teacher from God, if he can't shed accurate and uh, sufficient light on this question. But if nobody is able to come up with an answer to this question, what does that mean about the resurrection? That's right. That's what the Sadducees are hoping to show. You can't answer this question. Obviously, there's a logical problem with the resurrection. It must not actually be something that will occur. Of course, this frustrated the Pharisees and the others in Jewish society who believed in the resurrection, and they couldn't come up with an answer. So they put this question to Jesus. They think they've got him, but in his response, he gives first a twofold indictment. Is the reason that you're not mistaken that you, on the one hand, don't understand the scriptures. Yes, you're the priest. Yes, you're the religious leaders. You make up part of the Sanhedrin, but you don't understand the scriptures, and you don't understand the power of God. And then he explains a very simple answer to the situation. He says, look, in the resurrection, nobody's married to anybody. They're like the angels in heaven. So he answers that question pretty simply. But then he goes further. He says, but in regard to the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? And he points them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, Again, he had already told them they don't understand the scriptures, but now he's asking them, have you even read? And this book, Exodus, that's part of the thing, that's part of the Torah. That's what you say is the word of God. And that's what you say, oh, that's what we're totally devoted to. He says, have you not even read it? In the book or the law of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, they should have known about this. By the way, why doesn't he just quote chapter and verse number to them? 
Yeah, at that time, there were no chapters and verses. The breakdown of verses in the Hebrew didn't take place until the Middle Ages. And verse numbers and chapter numbers, those were not put together till uh, later in the Middle Ages. Uh, both of those things coming together around the 1500s. So remember, verse numbers and chapter numbers are not inspired. They didn't come originally with these documents, but they were put there later to be helpful for those who were studying the texts. So Jesus refers to the passage rather than a chapter and verse number. He says, remember the passage about the burning bush? And then he quotes it for them. What's so significant about the verse, the part of the verse that he quotes for them? What one word? Am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's so significant about that? Ah, the present tense, right? One word, now one aspect of that verb. Because for God to say it in the present tense, what does that mean about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In some, I think I heard it. In some way, they're still alive. Because if they died and there's no resurrection and there's no going on after that, God would have to say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not what God says. God says, I am. I'm still their God because they still live. And Jesus drives that home or drives that point home with his last words to them. He says, God is not a God of the dead. He's not using the past tense here. God is the God of the living. Therefore, you Sadducees are greatly mistaken. All right, so we've made our observations on the passage. Oh, I forgot to actually click the slide showing those observations. There they are. But now let's go to step two, talking about interpretation. Now, this may have been something we was obvious from the start, but why did the Sadducees bring this question to Jesus? Was it because they really wanted to know the answer? Oh, this is about discrediting Jesus, exalting their own authority, making Jesus look foolish, discrediting his claims to be Messiah and Son of God, show that he's not the authority on God or God's word. Of course, the results of this exchange is that Jesus, or I'll, actually, that's my next question. Based on what happens here, what does, well, something about himself, but before we even get to that, what does Jesus demonstrate about the scriptures? Here. What does Jesus show about the word, the word of God, the scriptures, based on his exchange with the Sadducees? Yeah, he shows that it is true and reliable. And we could even say it is the authority. You want to know about the resurrection? You want to have an answer about the resurrection? You got to go to the scriptures. And that's what Jesus does. But more than that, it's not simply that you should listen to the scriptures or the answers in the scriptures, but every part of the scriptures is significant. You can draw a conclusion about the resurrection based off of one word and the verb tense of that verb in one verse. Every word of God is significant and inspired. You know, there's a view when it comes to the Bible that 
says a view on inerrancy that is the perfectness and having no errors in the Bible that says the meaning of the Bible is inspired and inerrant, but not necessarily every word. Now, that doesn't even make logical sense. <laughs> the meaning comes from the words. But it's, a, it's an effort to qualify and not go all the way when you say that the Bible is inerrant. But that doesn't square with Jesus' own treatment of the Bible. If he's able to draw out the verb tense of one word as an answer to whether the resurrection is true or not, the whole word has to be inspired. All of Scripture, which is, of course, what the New Testament says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. It is useful for teaching. And Jesus says also in another place, Scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus demonstrates that the scripture is the authority and that every word of it is significant. Now, he's proving something about the word, but he's also proving something about himself. What does Jesus show about himself in this passage? If they were trying to discredit him, he's not the authority. You can't trust him as being from God. If he is able to answer the question and even show that the other people don't know what they're talking about, what does he show about himself? He shows himself to be the authority. He is the word of God. He is the perfect interpreter of God's word. He is able to declare God's word accurately and completely. As another part of the New Testament will call him, he is the revelation of the Father which is important if Jesus is going to demonstrate that he really is Messiah. Messiah must not simply demonstrate authority and power in the natural realm or even the spiritual realm over demons. He has to be able to be an authority on God's word, on truth, which is what Jesus demonstrates himself to be. You can't outwit Jesus. You can't trick him or trap him into saying something untrue about God or saying, oh, I don't know the answer. No, he's the Messiah. He understands God and God's word. He is able to perfectly declare the revelation of God. So Jesus shows himself not only to be the perfect word of God, but also the son of God and Messiah based on the exchange here. And really the, each of the exchanges in this passage, every time they come up to him, they're trying to trap him, trying to make him say something that's going to discredit him. And they can't do it because he's the Messiah. Now, if Jesus demonstrates that he is, he has divine power in both word and deed, he's the Messiah, what must man do in response? It's the same thing we've been saying. You've got to believe in him. How many times does Jesus have to demonstrate? How many times do the gospel writers have to demonstrate Jesus' authority? Before you recognize he's the Messiah, he's the Lord, he's the Son of God. You've got to believe in him. You've got to submit to him. Now, normally I, I save application to the very end of our lessons, but we're going to do application for each one of the passages as we look at it today. How can we apply these words from Mark chapter 12? A couple things I want to point out to you. First of all, once again, we've got to believe in the Messiah. This is what the gospel writers are, are trying to get us to understand. Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in him as word of God, son of God? Do you submit to him and do you follow him? 
that's ultimate application. But we can also see there's some application about the scriptures and really our attitude toward the scriptures. If the scriptures are the word of God, if they are the authority on life and truth, then we ought to seek it as the authority. Right? We have to submit ourselves to what it says. We must bring other truth claims and other assertions from teachers or different authorities in the world, and we must submit them to the scriptures. And along with this, means it means that we ought to read the Bible. And brothers and sisters, it always grieves me when I hear that our brother or sister is not reading the Bible consistently, or even at all. Why would we do this? Doesn't the scriptures say, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Doesn't the New Testament say, you are to desire the word like a newborn babe desires milk? If the authoritative word declares those things, why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you read it consistently? I know life is busy and you have different obligations and things come up. But if this is the authoritative word and if we have those verses that declare our need for it, aren't we going to make time for it? Aren't we going to make the scriptures a priority? And if you say, well, it's hard and I'm not getting anything out of it, well, get some help. Ask some people who understand, your pastors, your elders, or other mature people in the church. Ask them how they can help you read the scriptures. Or give you some principles so that you get more out of it when you do read it. This is the word of God. It's the authority. It's the, it's the lamp for our feet. We've got to be reading it. And from our passage, we can see that when we read it, we ought to pay attention to the details of the word. We want to give it close reading. A close reading is a term that's often used in literature when it comes to looking at a piece of English literature or something like that. What close reading is, is that beyond merely looking at the content of a text, the information that's contained inside, you also pay attention to how that text is delivered, the form. And you also pay attention to the different details in the text and how they all relate to the main message. That's a little bit of what Jesus just did in this passage. And that's hopefully what you're hearing from the pulpit each Sunday as pastor preaches or as someone else preaches. They're showing you how the form and the details of a passage all correspond to delivering a main message. You want to be paying attention to those things too as you read the Bible. That's what Bible study really is. Now, I'm not saying that every time you open the Bible, you need to do a word study and go to the Hebrew and consult commentaries and all those types of things. No, there is a place for lighter, more devotional reading that doesn't get as deep into all those details. But even in devotional reading, think about the form of the text and why the different details appear as they do, because that will help you resolve questions that come up in the text, especially those most important questions. Why did the author write this and what is his main message? So we want to seek the text, seek the scriptures as authority. We want to read it. We want to read it closely. And we want to beware of coming to the text with preconceived notions. Because that's what the Sadducees did, right? They never considered the significance of this 
phrase from Moses because they'd already resolved in their minds there's no such thing as the resurrection. And when you have an assumption or a preconceived notion or a system of belief that you want to uh, impose on the text, you'll miss what's actually there. You won't be able to see what's there because a tradition is guiding your thinking. And this happens very easily. It's like what we were discussing at the beginning of the lesson. Even well-meaning people do this, and for well-meaning systems of thought. You may say, I'm a, good, I'm a good follower of Reformed theology. But if you take your theology and you impose it on different texts, you abuse Scripture. You misuse it. You know, there's a phrase that I hear a number of times in the seminary that professors really want to drive home to us. It relates to exegesis versus theology. Exegesis is just a term that talks that means your study of scripture or your interpretation of scripture. And they say, your exegesis should not come from your theology. Rather, your theology should come from your exegesis. Or to say it another way, your understanding of God, no, let me say it. The way you read the Bible the way you study the Bible doesn't come from what you already believe about God or some other system you have about God. But what you believe about God and the world and life, it must come from your study of scriptures. I mean, pastors mentioned recently sola scriptura, right? That's what this is. If what you read in the word or what the word says contradicts some tradition or some point of orthodox theology, you've got to submit yourself to the scripture because that's the authority. Now, in saying this, we do need to guard against two things, one on each side. One is that we don't say, all right, I submit myself only to the word. I don't care what anybody else says. And we become our own popes. We basically become our mini cult leaders. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. The Bible says we need one another. We're to interpret the scriptures within a faithful community. We can't just say, I'm the only one who understands the scripture. No, we, we want to be with other people and consider what they have to say. And on the other hand, we cannot simply follow what some theologian says, even somebody who's right a lot of the time, somebody who's well celebrated, whether he's alive today or in the past. Oh, what did John Calvin say about this? I better believe that. What did Martin Luther say about this? Or what did Spurgeon say about this? I better believe that. Well, they did have some helpful things to say, but you don't submit to them. You submit to the scriptures. So you have to guard against the, both, of those, both of those ways of going off track. Because otherwise, we become subject to the same rebuke that Jesus gave to the Sadducees, which is, have you not read? Didn't you know? How did you miss this? We can't afford to do that for the sake of the Lord Jesus and his glory, but also for the sake of our own joy and walk with him. We've got to subject ourselves to the scriptures. Questions so far? Yeah, Ron. Hmm, I'm not sure what other um, section you might be referring to, that he's the God of the dead.
Hmm. That verse isn't coming to my mind. Certainly, the we know the point of Jesus' words here. He's saying that these patriarchs are not dead and gone. They continue to live in some way. And that way, that's why God is able to use the present tense. So Jesus is explaining the significance of that verb. I can see perhaps, I don't know exactly how it's worded it <clears throat> in another place, as you're saying, but I could see someone saying, God is the God of the dead, meaning in the sense that those who have died, he's still Lord over them. And if they belong to him, they, they're still going to be taken care of by God. And if they don't belong to him, they're going to be judged by God. I think the one verse that does come to mind is that charge that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, he who is going to judge the living and the dead. So we do, we do have that categorization of those who are physically still alive and those who are physically not. But certainly in this passage, Jesus' point is that these patriarchs are not dead and gone. They continue to live before God. So there is a resurrection. Other questions? So we see from this first passage how systems of belief for the Sadducees, not believing in the resurrection or even the rest of the books of the Bible, systems of belief can cause one to ignore truth or mistruth that is in the scriptures. We must be careful about that. But another great danger is when unbiblical traditions actually justify sinful behavior. Unbiblical traditions justifying sinful behavior. And we're going to see an instance of that in the next passage. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 to 23. Now we're going backwards in Mark. That's okay. Normally, um, this lesson calls us to go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 1 to 20. If you're using the student guide, there might be some notes there. But I'm going to use the parallel passage in Mark. They're really talking about the same thing, which is um, this certain instance where the Pharisees confront Jesus. They're both giving an account of the same event, but Mark's account is a little bit fuller, so I'm going to go with Mark here. What's the context? This is late in Jesus' ministry, not yet in his Passion Week in Jerusalem. This is right after he's fed the 5,000 plus by multiplying the bread. This is after his discourse, declaring himself the bread of life. We talked about that last time. Mark doesn't record that discourse, but he does record the miracle. So we're still in a part of Jesus' ministry where many of Jesus' disciples have left him. And there's increased opposition from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those opposition groups that don't like Jesus. They're coming after Jesus more and more. And we're going to see one example of that, another example of that, in the Pharisees in this passage. So read with me Mark 7, verses 1 to 23, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever I would have... Whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such, you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you lacking? Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. All right, we've read our passage. Let's go back to step one now and observe. This time, it's the Pharisees and the scribes coming to Jesus. Pharisees are the other group of religious elite. They take the whole Old Testament scriptures as God's word, but they also hold to the traditions added to the word, the traditions of the elders and the rabbis. Pharisees were all about obeying these commands, both from the Old Testament and from the traditions. But they focus so much on the externality of the commands. If there's anything that the scripture said to do, they would do it. But they often neglected the heart, which is something that Jesus would constantly point out to them. You guys are only good on the outside. And they were well-respected. These Pharisees were well-respected among the people. They were considered the most pious, the most righteous. But Jesus says, you are only good on the outside. In the inside, you are wicked. Jesus did not mince words with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees hated Jesus probably the most. They're with the scribes. What's a scribe again? They also could be called lawyer. They were experts in the law. They would sometimes copy text, but they were experts with text, especially the Old Testament text, and so they were considered experts in the law. If you had a question about the Bible or about what is the appropriate mode of action, you could go to a scribe, and they would tell you. They were like uh, another kind of religious teacher. So these two, Pharisees and scribes, come to Jesus, and they complain about his disciples eating with impure hands. They say, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Now, does the Old Testament command that you are supposed to wash your hands before you eat? It doesn't actually command that. It does have various provisions regarding clean and unclean, even when it comes to food. You're not supposed to eat unclean foods. And also, you are to be careful that 
Um, not to touch unclean things, like a person who was unclean, that would make you unclean. But there's no specific provision in the Old Testament about washing your hands before you eat. Nevertheless, a tradition arose among the Jews and among the religious leaders that one had to wash in a special way whenever he came back from the marketplace. Marketplace, all kinds of people there. Even if you don't touch those people, you're kind of in the same area. So you, need, you just need to go cleanse yourself. And we're not talking about germs here. Some of you might wash your hands before you eat because you're like, oh, you know, I don't want to get sick. I want to make sure that my hands are clean before I put food into my mouth. They didn't know anything about germs back then. This wasn't about sickness. This was about ceremonial cleanliness. This is about getting that ickiness from the Gentiles off of you, just breathing the same air. And this wasn't the only thing. This was just the, the tip of the iceberg. There are other things that they felt like they, need, they needed to wash before they ate. Mark just alludes to washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So there, there was something in the Old Testament about clean and unclean. And, and when he became unclean, you did have to go through a certain kind of cleansing. But what they're, uh, this tradition goes beyond the scriptures and requires other cleansings. Now, would it be wrong to, even though the Bible doesn't say it, to wash your hands in this ritual way? Not necessarily. You can do it if you want. God doesn't require it. But it was their tradition and their concern that Jesus and his disciples are not following him. And they ask him, why don't your disciples keep this tradition? Their hands are impure. Why are you letting that happen? Now, as is often the case, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. You may have seen this a number of times by now. When people ask Jesus questions in the Bible, he often does not give them a straight answer. He gives them the answer they need. He doesn't often answer their main question, or at least not directly. Actually, Jesus starts out by saying, you guys are hypocrites. And Isaiah rightly spoke of you. And he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. In that passage, Isaiah, God through Isaiah, is speaking of Judah in the days of Isaiah. At that time, the people of Judah were following God, but following idols at the same time. They said that they wanted to serve the Lord, but they were serving their own lusts and desires. And so God pointed out to the people that you honor me only with your lips. Your hearts are far from me, and you don't honor my word. You honor traditions. You teach the doctrines of men as if they were the doctrines of God. Jesus says the Pharisees are the same way. You are hypocrites. You only keep man-made traditions, and you don't really love God. But then he goes further. He says, not only do you ignore the important things for the sake of your tradition, but you actually use tradition to nullify the commandment of God. He says, you're experts at it. You're skilled at doing this. This isn't an accidental thing that happens with you. You're, you're well-practiced in this. And he uses an example. This thing with honoring your father and mother and Corbin. Now, honoring your father and mother, that's so basic. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But somehow, they were nullifying this command. How are they doing it? Well, this tradition called Corban. This is a post-exilic tradition, something they came up with after the Jews came back from exile. The idea was you would dedicate something to God, maybe some money you had or some property you had. And then once you did that, you declared it Corban. You weren't allowed to use it for personal or secular interests. So you say, I declare this certain amount of money as Corban, and if something comes up in your life, you need to pay for something, you say, oh, I can't use that. 
I can't use that to, to pay for my needs. I need, this is only for sacred purposes. <clears throat> but Jesus says the people were using this in order that they might not support or help their parents. They'd say, oh, what, I see you're in need, but whatever I would have given you is already korban. They wouldn't do anything to help their parents. Now, why wouldn't you want to help your parents? Why would these Jews not want to do that? Okay, it could be simply because they, they want to keep the money for themselves. Or they simply don't like their parents. Or maybe a combination of the two. Like, oh, I don't like the way my parent has been treating me lately. Oh, he's in need? I'm going to say that my money is Corbin. And you can imagine that this dedication may not take place, this declaring something Corban may not take place until someone realizes his parent is in need. Oh, my parents need something from me. I better declare this Corban so I don't have to give anything to them. And you can also see how you can be strategic about this. Be like, hmm, you know, I've got some temple offerings coming up or I've got some sacrifices I need to do. My parents need money. Why don't I just declare this Corban? That way I would have been paying this for the sacrifices anyways, but now there's no way my parents can make me feel bad about not giving it to them. And when I get more money later on, I can take care of my other needs. But for now, I can just declare these things Corban, and that way I don't have to give anything. The system was being manipulated. And that's why Jesus says, for the sake of your tradition, you totally nullify the commandment of God to honor your father and mother. It makes it so the people dishonor their parents and don't even provide for their needs. Don't even help them out. Jesus says, this is just one example. You do many such things as that. And that's all he has to say to them. He doesn't answer their question about the impure hands thing. He does answer that question for the sake of the crowds. He's not really addressing the Pharisees and scribes anymore. Notice the latter part of this passage. Jesus calls the crowds to himself. And he wants to make clear to them, it's not the things that come from the outside, especially not food, that can defile a person. And why can't they defile a person? Say that again. Okay, he does provide it. Though Jesus points out there's something that, there's some place that these external things cannot go. And therefore they can't defile you. Where can't they go? They can't reach your heart, right? It says, when you eat something, it goes into the stomach and is eliminated. It doesn't go into your heart. The heart's the place that matters. That's where, that's where something can defile you. Jesus says, actually, the source of defilement is not from the outside to the inside, but it's from the inside out. It's actually what comes from your heart that defiles you. And what comes from the heart? Well, sin. And Jesus lists various kinds of sin. Adulteries, um, fornications, uh, covetousness, wicked thoughts. These come from within, Jesus says, and defile a person. So Jesus makes clear, it's not the external things that can defile a person or make them impure. It's what's internal. It's sin. By the way, Mark tells us Jesus declared all foods clean. Because if you make this principle, it's nothing external, then truly there's no such thing as an unclean food. 
This doesn't mean that Jesus immediately went and had some ham. I'm sure he continued to keep the law until he died and was resurrected. But as Jesus fulfilled the law, there was no reason for his disciples or any of those who believed in him to any longer follow these rules of external ritual uncleanness because there's nothing from without that can defile a person. So with these observations, let's move now to step two, interpretation. Let's ask some questions. What does this account show us about Jesus? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, well said, Roy. Jesus, again, shows himself to be the authority of truth. He understands God's words perfectly. He's quoting Isaiah and rightly applying it. He understands what is a biblical tradition and what's not a biblical tradition. He speaks with authority about God's truth. He understands it, as Roy was saying, better than anyone else ever has. We see also that Jesus is zealous for God's truth. Notice how uh, abrasive is too strong of a word, or maybe it's not, but he comes out boldly against these Pharisees. He just goes right off and says, you guys are hypocrites. He's not afraid to firmly and boldly confront their sin and their self-righteousness. We often, in our day, hear people characterize Jesus as, oh, you know, he was so loving. He was so meek. Jesus was loving and he was humble. But that didn't mean that he wasn't zealous for God, zealous for truth, and indignant with sin. He was compassionate, but he was also zealous for his father. He's zealous for God's truth. He's the authority of God's truth. And this, again, points us that Jesus is the Messiah. This is exactly what Messiah should be and was foretold to be. This account also shows us something else about what true righteousness is before God. What is true righteousness in God's eyes? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, it's not about the external. It's not about keeping traditions. It's not about rituals. First of all, it relates to what God actually commanded. But more importantly, it's ultimately about the heart. You can do everything you want on the outside to look good. You can keep all sorts of rituals, all sorts of external commands. But if your heart is not clean, it doesn't matter. You're defiled before God. You're not clean before him. And we know God hates uncleanness. He hates sin. And if you remain in that state, you're under judgment. The truly righteous person needs a clean heart. But we know from other scriptures, none of us have clean hearts, naturally. We've inherited a defiled heart from Adam. So for any person to be saved, what needs to happen to him? He needs a new heart. He needs a cleansing. He needs a supernatural transformation. And only God can provide this. And this, of course, is what the gospel is all about. God is able to do what you cannot do. You cannot clean yourself before God, no matter how much you change the outside. But he's able to clean you from within. If you will believe in the one who's been sent for your cleansing, who is Jesus. 
Jesus' sacrifice, his transforming work. By faith, we take hold of that, and God gives us a new heart. And he cleanses us from all defilements. That's what salvation is really all about. But that becomes, or let me say it this way. That's not on the Pharisees' minds. What's on their minds is tradition. Therefore, this passage shows us why, or this passage shows us the answer to this question. Why are man-made religious traditions often very dangerous? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, absolutely. Traditions distract us from what God actually said. We could become zealous for those traditions, and we don't actually pay attention to God's word anymore. Craig, were you going to say something? No? Okay. Uh, Rob? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've hit both of you have hit on two very important aspects. Traditions cause us to neglect God's word, and traditions also cause us to neglect the most important part, which is the heart. Traditions they keep you focused on the external part, and you neglect the heart. And we also see here that traditions can be used to ignore or invalidate the word, uh, the words of the Bible. You can actually justify evil by tradition and contradict the word of God. So traditions can be quite dangerous if they're not biblical or if they're followed in an unbiblical way. By the way, which is easier, to keep man-made traditions or to keep God's word? It's the traditions, right? Because as we said, they focus on the externals. We love things that focus on the externals because they're not that hard to do. And you get a certain sort of satisfaction from doing it. Make yourself feel very righteous. But that's not what God actually required. He required you to be clean in the heart. But it's so easy to get sucked up with traditions and things only related to externals. So we must be on guard. So you can see that we have some application from this. This was not only a problem for the Pharisees, but it can become a problem for us. Some questions for us to consider when it comes to application. This passage shows us again that we need to believe in Jesus as Messiah, but that we also must believe the true gospel. The gospel goes after our hearts. It's not about simply doing more good things on the outside. It's about getting a new heart from God. You can't do that on your own. You need God to cleanse you, save you from his wrath, and make you into his own um, slave of righteousness. Which is what happens when you embrace Jesus by faith. Now, we've been using the term tradition to describe most of what's going on in this passage, but what term do we use more often to describe adding man-made rules and traditions to the Bible? What term do we use? Starts with an L. Legalism. Legalism. 
and you can see the idea of legal law in the name. It's the idea we add rules to God's word. And we can even, even we can become legalistic and be legalistic with one another. What are some areas in which Christians often get legalistic with one another today? I'll give you some examples. Holidays. Do you celebrate Christmas? Do you celebrate Halloween? We can get legalistic over those things. The Bible does not command us to celebrate Christmas, or Easter for that matter, and a specific day. We can get legalistic over prayers. Did you pray before you eat? You know, sometimes we joke. I don't know if you've joked, but sometimes someone forgets to pray before he eats, and you say, heathen, what are you doing? And it's kind of a joke. But you know what? Sometimes it's not. You're like, oh, they don't pray before they eat. Does the Bible command you to pray before you eat? No. It says food is sanctified with thankfulness. It doesn't say you have to pray for it. We can get legalistic over food. Do you eat this or do you eat that? We can get legalistic over drink. Do you drink alcohol? We can get legalistic over the Sabbath. What do you do on Sunday? We can get legalistic over what we do in worship. What do you wear to worship? What do you sing in worship? We can get legalistic over entertainment choices. What kind of music you listen to? Do you have a television? We can get legalistic over dating. We can get legalistic over education choices. Do you homeschool? Oh, you don't homeschool? Do you put them in Christian school? Do you put them in public school? We can get legalistic over dress and appearance. Oh, he's wearing earrings. Are these things actually commanded in the Bible? Now, understand, the Bible does have things to say about those areas I just mentioned. And of course, there are other areas too. There is a standard that we ought to apply in things like our entertainment or what we decide to do in worship or what we decide to do when it comes to educating our kids. But we need to be able to distinguish between what the Bible actually says and commands and what is just a personal application from that command. We also need to be able to distinguish, because this happens all the time, when you actually give what the Bible says about something, people will often call you a legalist. They say, oh, you're saying you're not allowed to do that? You must be a legalist. You're just being legalistic. No, there actually is a biblical standard. And sometimes people don't even want to listen to that. But we must be careful not to go beyond that. We do want to uphold the biblical standard, but we don't want to be legalists. Now, you can, for your own personal application, you can add things that the Bible doesn't say you have to do just because you think that'll be more helpful for you or because you want to honor God in that way, that's fine. Let's be careful that we don't impose that standard on others because over such issues of tradition and preference, what do we Christians often do to one another? We condemn. We judge and condemn. You know, people often quote, Jesus said not to judge. And we're like, oh, you misunderstand that phrase because people are trying to excuse their sin. But Jesus did say not to judge. Right? We can't ignore that he did say that. What did he mean? We well, said, don't judge with an unrighteous standard. Don't judge with unrighteous judgment. And what's unrighteous judgment? When you use a standard that goes beyond God's word. And when you condemn people before you actually know the situation. And we do this, don't we? We see somebody not following some Christian tradition and we say, oh, you know, he's compromising. He's kind of a worldly person. This is a misplaced zeal. This is just like what the Pharisees were doing. <gasps> he didn't wash his hands before he ate. This is distracting us. 
This is distracting us from the actual words of God. This is distracting us from the most important matters of the Christian life. And it's actually causing us to sin against one another. We become condemnatory and even hateful towards one another. Tradition is causing us to sin. And we can also say, this is kind of a different way to think about tradition. Sometimes we justify sin because everybody else does it. Well, you know, all the Christians are doing this thing. It must not be wrong. All the Christians I know, it may just be a tradition. What does the Bible actually say? Because even as a society or as a Christian, as a Christian body, we might have blind spots. We might be doing things or people might be doing things that are actually not biblical, but they've just become accepted. We have to go back to the word. It's not that all traditions are wrong or that no tradition is helpful for you personally, but you have to go back to the scriptures. We must go back to the standard, which is God's word. So brothers and sisters, this morning as we close, please consider yourselves and consider your own life. Have you been living legalistically? Have you been coming up with a standard that goes beyond the scriptures and then imposing that standard on other people and judging them based on that? Don't judge with unrighteous judgment. And also, do you... Have you been subjected to Christian bandwagoning? Oh, all the other Christians must be doing it, or are doing it. It must not be wrong. No, go back to the scriptures. Examine things that are common or just tradition and make sure that they're actually biblical or that they're not being exercised in an unbiblical way. We, can, we need to repent of these things if we're involved in them because they're sin. They distract us from the things that are important. But of course, when we repent, we have restored fellowship with God and we have restored fellowship with one another. We have different examples in the Old even in the New Testament, of Christians who fall into legalism, but then repent. Peter's one, right? He wouldn't eat with the Jews, or he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because some people came in who thought that wasn't right. He started to act legalistically, but he repented. And he never forgot the lesson that he learned. Brothers and sisters, let us be zealous for the right things. Let us be zealous for God, for Jesus, our Savior, for his word, and not for traditions. We're out of time for today. If you have other questions or comments, please email me. We've seen some wonderful truths in these two passages, but we're going to continue to see more next week as we continue looking at Jesus' teaching and we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Pray with me as we close. Our God, I thank you for this word, but God, it is so easy to get caught up in traditions, to get caught up in mere externals, and to start judging one another. God, we know that there is a standard that we do need to exhort one another to hold. That's the standard of your scriptures. But God, so easy it is for us to go beyond that and start becoming self-righteous, just like the Pharisees. So God, let us be in the biblical place where we actually hold to your word and are not distracted from it. I pray that you would accomplish that, God, among the people of Calvary and any of those listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. See you next week.